thank you. Right. Uh, anyway, thanks for uh, having me here. And um, today I just wanted to talk a little bit about, I want to go back and actually revisit a couple talks, at least stuff that I got out of the, the meeting, um, especially the conference a few weeks back, and take things a little bit out of context of what they did, I suppose. Um, so what I want to talk about is self-assembly and some models that I've worked on self-assembly and related to the self-assembly and evolution of yeast clusters that um, Travisano talked about. Growing clusters of budding yeast that don't detach, or and there was a lot of talk also about uh, coming together versus uh, versus uh, uh, replication, proliferation. Um, Tarnita also talked about aggregation, cooperation of of um, daughter cells, uh, and another another theme was signaling and quorum sensing, which obviously is important. And this is um, Eldar and you talked about that. And I also, and Eldar in his informal talk a few weeks back also mentioned something about diffusion sensing. This is this, this other paradigm that uh, Rosie Redfield uh, promotes. And I want to briefly mention what that's about um, in case that wasn't clear. And also present a toy model related to that. And hopefully show some interesting behavior from at least the physics uh, or mathematical point of view. Okay, <clears throat> so this is a picture I lifted off the ITP website, Travisano's uh, growing yeast, forming clusters. And let me start by just talking about very simple a growth ball, right? So let's say M, I call it M for a reason, but it's the number of organisms, particles, cells, daughters, whatever, dot is some growth law times M, right? And this growth law, this growth is some function, I'm going to say, it's some function of phi. Phi is food, right? some resource. And let me just say, let me just take a very simple form for this, uh, the, 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 the food, right? the resource, as some constant source minus the consumers times the abundance of that source. Uh, sorry, the abundance of that food. Right, I'm going to put an epsilon there for a reason, which you should know, which you'll understand shortly. Okay, so we can take, so what kind of growth laws are we, we, might we be interested in? Generally, they should have this form, right? Either the, this dark curve, this light, uh, this red curve. So they should be negative when there's no food and there's some crossover, and when it's beyond, when it's large, it should be some positive value. Doesn't really matter so much where, whether it uh, asymptotes or not in the positive regime, as long as it's just growing when there's abundant food. If we take the outer solution of this, or the steady state solution of this, right, because of the time scales, I'm going to assume that the food follows the... You're assuming that food is the only limiting constraint, right? Well, this is sort of a general... But there could concern. be other things, there like could, signaling, for example. I could tell you that I'm more hungry than you or something. Right, right. And that will also be some function of... Uh, uh, I mean, if, if these particles are, are, or these organisms are self-signaling, then it's some other function of M. Right. So, so this is just a very generic uh, a form, right? You can put these in. You can put almost anything in. You have to be careful about stability. If you want to, in the end of the day, get equations like this, what do I mean by equations like this? I take this g in here. I take this. Um, I take this. Outer, you set this epsilon. You set this to zero. This is the quasi-steady state solution, right? So m times phi is lambda. 
so M and phi related. You put phi as a function of M in here, put that back in the growth law, and you get equations like this, right? So M dot is some source minus M, so that has a stable point. M, double, M dot is this something one minus M times M. This is a logistic equation, right? This is the carrying capacity, or one over the carrying capacity. That's all it is. What this is, what this tells you is that there's a constraint. Sort of a soft constraint or hard constraint depending on these parameter values, okay? This constraint is on M, the total number of daughter cells that can, that can grow. Or, or this, yeah. And you don't have a restriction on how much uptake they can, how much resources they can. So if sure. So you can put a, you can put a over phi plus phi critical down here. Okay. Same. You get the same form. Right. You'll get another parameter phi critical. Right. You can put a saturating function of phi here. So so you're just talking about the number of, of cells, not the number of clusters. Is that right? That's right. Okay. There's a total number of cells, and that's constrained. Right. It wants to reach. Let's say it wants to reach its carrying capacity. So that's fixed. But now the question is exactly, you've hit upon the point, which is how do these particles distribute themselves within the clusters? And since people are doing evolution experiments or, or filtrating these, uh, sedimenting these things down, you might want to know the distribution of sizes of these clusters. So that's, uh, that's what I will segue into now. Okay, so now we're actually interested in growth or self-assembly of these clusters with this total mass constraint. Constrained at this carrying capacity, for example. And also, you're assuming that the uptake does not depend on the amount of, of biomass, right? So, on, on the size of the colony. Because it, as the colonies uh, increase. Right, no, here, here, I haven't, here I haven't assumed it. I've just assumed everything was randomly distributed. But mm -hmm. um, yes, that's just for simplicity, right? So, this is very, uh, very generic in some sense, um, not very specific constraint. There. Okay. All right. So uh, let me sort of take things, take a step back, and let's talk about a slightly different set of problems where this arises. Right. So this is how it's connect, connected to the, the multicellular growth. But actually, the self-assembly happens in many other contexts. Right. And I just want to present a couple of them from biophysics. One is the self-assembly of uh, membrane peptides, for example, into pores. Okay. So. What we're interested in is uh, the number of monomers or the number of peptides in the cell membrane. Right? So that's a fixed number, right? as long as there's no uh, a source or sink for them. Right? So that's a fixed number, and one can imagine that that is the constraint. That's the capital M that I'm talking about. Right? Whether they be cells that can replicate or not, or whether they're just dead particles that can come and aggregate, it's, it's mathematically, at least in the model, irrelevant. Right? So these assemble to form pores, um, and they live in a finite size system, just like the yeast in, in the test tube is a finite, in, in a finite size system. There is a maximum uh, cluster size. That is, when these clusters, when these uh, peptides form six, typically four to eight uh, clusters, uh, four, four to eight uh, size clusters, that's the, that's the end of it, right? That, that's the maximum size that the cluster can be. So that also had, there's also this concept of the size regulation also in these yeast clusters that, that was talked about. Another example is of self-assembly in a finite size system is a viral capsid assembly inside a closed virus, inside the lipid membrane. This is HIV. It 
matures by having the forming, it matures after it buds out, buds out of the host cell, it matures through the capsid uh, proteins assembling into uh, the full capsid that contains the uh, genetic material. Okay, so here the typical max, the maximum cluster size of which there's only one is on the order of 100 to 1,000. Right? That's also uh, clustering, aggregation in a finite size system. And finally, clathrin coated pits where the clathrin um, particles self-assemble into endocytotic pits and that maximum cluster size is on the order of 25 to 50. Okay, so you can think of the yeast problem of budding, of growth, of each cluster growing as the same, as, uh, in the same way, right? So here we're looking at monomers that diffuse around and I'm only gonna look at uh, mass action, no spatial dependence. Each of them can bind to a cluster. That's equivalent to a cluster of yeast cells budding and adding one more to it, right? The only, the only thing that matters really here is the global constraint on the total mass or the total number of yeast cells of which there's enough nutrient to, uh, to, to, to allow, okay? And so the nutrient is equivalent to the monomers here? Correct, okay. correct. So the free monomers in the sense is the potential to form new uh, living organisms. In this case, not living, but uh, uh, the, this is the analogy I'm trying to make. Is it important that in Trapezoidal's clusters, the cells are clustered because they have not went on away from each other, so they've stayed together as opposed to coming together? Like the here, here doesn't matter. Uh, for what I'm doing, it won't matter because I'm just assuming a well-mixed system and I'm going to look at equilibrium eventually. So you can imagine this cluster growing and then some of, the, some of them dying and then dying and then uh, their remains going off into the solution, becoming nutrient again eventually, and then, so I'm thinking, you know, long time scales, and then uh, um, maybe growing again, right? So, so each, each cluster is fluctuating in size, but it reaches some equilibrium distribution, which, um, which these things do as well, but just on a much faster time scale. Okay, so what's been done? Well, uh, these, the model the, the Karina Tarnita talked about that's, that kind of approach has been applied um, commonly, actually. Um, for example, this, this uh, viral capsid assembly model, you write down the concentration of numbers of clusters of a certain size, right? And there's actually fragmentation and coagulation processes has also been discussed in this new book by Kapriski um, et al. And of course, these type of models in the math community has been, have been really studied um, in quite detail, actually, uh, looking at a lot of asymptotic analysis of, the, of, the, of these kind of growth problems. But there's very little on the stochastic treatments, right? And, there's, and they come from very different uh, fields. This is like social dynamics, and this one is um, aggregation of uh, uh, seeding of droplets in clouds. So they come from different applications, but they've looked at the stochastic treatment of this type of self-assembly and nucleation process. Okay, so let me re let me review that briefly. Sorry, um, this work on like diffusion um, limited aggregation, where you get all these fractal uh, patterns of particles or even bacteria, and things right. like that, is that considered a stochastic treatment or that? That that can be yeah, that can be considered a stochastic treatment, sure. But there's a, usually a spatial. There, people are concerned with one cluster and looking at the the right. shape of it, right? right. Looking at a, a more detailed level. Here I'm just looking, I just want to count how many clusters of a certain size there are. Right? I'm going to make some very simplifying assumptions. Um, but first, there's two classifications I want to distinguish. One is heterogeneous and one is homogeneous. 
nucleation. This is a classic uh, distinguishing uh, uh, method of distinguish two types of nucleation. Heterogeneous is that you need seeds, these triangles, the monomers diffuse around, they bind to the seeds and form a mass, and then form these clusters, right? And there's a maximum cluster size here, which is six, I guess, the way I've drawn it. So I'm going to call M the total mass, the total number of monomers. And F, in this case, is the number of hexagons or the number of seeds. And N is the maximum cluster size, right? which could vary depending on uh, You don't have any context. dimension here. You don't have any, any X, Y, Z or anything, right? No, well mixed, just shaking. So then you, your, your, your uh, cells are also point objects. Yes. They don't have any steric hindrance. There's no snowflaking stuff. Uh, Yes, but you can put it in sort of in a very crude way. Um, I, I'll mention some, something. But yeah, typically, yeah. This is just a sort of a formal mathematical problem, if you will, or physics model, if you will. The other case is homogeneous nucleation, where they just uh, spontaneously form dimers and trimers and et cetera, and then, and then grow up like that, OK? OK, so these are the two, two models. Um, so how do you treat this? Right? So typically, so for the heterogeneous problem, you can write down your mass action. And the, these will look like the equations that uh, Karina talked about for aggregation and uh, daughter cells. Um, so here is, and they were nonlinear, by the way, right? So this is the number of empty seeds, number of seeds with k monomers bound. And this is the maximum number, n. So m, little m, is the number of free monomers. That's the total mass minus k times ck sum. Right? So that's a constraint. Right? So this is a this is so um, the growth rate of these clusters decreases when I have more clusters, right? Because it's taking up the resource m. So that's this little m in here. Epsilon. So what I'm going to what I'm going to assume for the rest of this talk is that the attachment rate of monomers to each cluster of size k is constant. Just for simplicity, I can make this a function of k. The detachment rate is also constant. And that I'm going to assume that the detachment rate is very slow. So that you can think of this as a very deeply quenched system where the, the monomers want to bind. They want to form clusters. So that you have, at the end of the day, you should have very few free monomers. Right, that's, that's the goal. That's be, the. It's, it doesn't. It's, it doesn't really make sense in this system, but it would be nutrients leaking out of the cells, of the yeast cells. Nutrients leaking out of the cells. Yeah, because you're making this analogy between uh, nucleation, and in nucleation it would be monomers leaking out of uh, clusters. Right? <laughs> in your case here, it's. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, whatever. Yes. The yes, yes. 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 It'll be. Yeah. It'll, no. 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 It, it's death of the cell. Death of the right. cell, but with release of nutrients that then could be re, re taken up again. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Exactly. That's on a much longer time scale than, than this problem. But yeah, exactly. Um, so of course, there's many asymptotic results known for this. But uh, so it's fashionable to do some stochastics. Okay. So let's see what happens. Right. Let's compare that this mean field approach, these equations, with a stochastic approach. So in the stochastic approach, I want to write the probability that at some time t I have m free monomers and n0 free seeds, n1 seeds bound to one monomer, et cetera, et cetera, and i seeds bound to i monomers, right? I want the whole dis probability distribution of the whole configuration. You write down the master equation, uh, assuming exponentially distributed attachment and detachment events, and you can write it in terms of these uh, raising and lowering operators on this probability distribution. 
okay? And that raising and lowering is defined here, right? It's taking a free monomer, binding it to a cluster of size i, decreasing the number of clusters of size i, and increasing the number of clusters of size i plus 1, right? Okay, do that. These are the constraints. Again, total mass constraints. You can find the mean number of clusters of size k. Okay, so the, the way to look at this problem, though, is to look at the configuration space of the, uh, of the whole stochastic process. So let's assume that we started off with four free monomers. This is just a simple example. And five empty seeds, right? The first step I can take is to take one of the monomers, bind it to an empty seed to reduce the empty seed number by one, and increase the number of seeds with one monomer by one, right? And so forth. And this thing gets uh, very quickly very messy. But uh, just for illustration, if I only have attachment rates, if I only have attachment and no detachment, it's irreversible, I reach a final quenched state that has these probabilities, right? These sum to one. So these configurations are, the, are my final state. From these probabilities, I can construct the, uh, the mean number of clusters, okay? And I put a star here because this is, this is metastable, meaning this is, does not allow reversal, does not allow detachment of particles or death of cells. Okay. If I allowed a slow rate of death of cells, I reach down here and I can detach, come up, and come back down again. So what I have to do is apply detailed balance between this, these states and these states, connecting them. Okay. And you see these probabilities change. Right, they changed on, on order one. And you can do this generally? So yes. Uh, I'm not going to present it, but uh, yeah. And if I'll get to that. And you to solve the master equation, use it to calculate an equation for the, for the first moment, do you get like a moment closure? Yep, yeah, I'll get to all that okay. yeah. briefly, because I want to cover a lot of other stuff. Um, okay. Right. Okay, so what's happening, right? I reach this quenched distribution here. And then if I wait long enough, I allow the monomers to detach and readjust and redistribute themselves to equilibrium, to true equilibrium, this configuration. Okay? So what does that look like if I plot it? Here you, here you are. Okay. So this is just the filling fraction, total mass divided by total number of seeds times the maximum number that each seed can take. Right? And here, plotted in log time, are the concentrations of clusters of size k. And this is k goes to 5, and I've only plotted a few of them here, right, on each one of these. Okay, so k is 1. This is seeds uh, with one monomer attached. They grow, plateau. This plateau region is the star value, are, are these, correspond to these states. Okay, if I wait long enough, so this is log, right? So epsilon here was, I didn't plot it, but epsilon here was 10 to the minus 5. So I have to wait a time scale of 1 over 10 to the minus 5 here before I readjust, redistribute the cluster, the, the, the monomers to equilibrium. Okay? So this is, a, this is the simplest picture of coarsening or ripening that I can think of. Right? Okay. The dashed lines are the solutions of the mean field equations. And the solid lines are from simulation, kinetic Monte Carlo. 
uh, average over 10 to the 6 runs or something like that. So very, very, you know, uh, very there precise. No singletons in your. Excuse me. There are no singletons here at all, right? Cells are always in clusters. There's no k equals infinity. K. Uh, uh, there's a maximum cluster size. Beyond that cluster size, the, the cluster won't grow. K, K is the index uh, indicating the size of the cluster. So N, C, C sub K is the concentration of clusters of size K. So K equals 1 is a single singleton. That's right. right. K equals 0 is seeds that haven't bound anything yet. And this is from the this is the, the uh, mean this is from the exact uh, stochastic um, simulation. So you see, there's not much of a difference qualitatively, right? Between the, mean field and simulation. Between mean field and simulation. This is tip. This is actually I run into this more than anything else, right? That if you're looking at mean values, expected values, stochastics doesn't really give typically will not give you an order one uh, difference. Okay, so, and we can, you know, be a little more careful and look at the difference, right? We can define some kind of normalized error between simulation and mean field, right? And plot these errors as a function of total mass. And you see these numbers are all very small. Right? This is the error at the at the metastable uh, plateau. This is the error after you reach equilibrium. So the error does shift, um, but it's small, right? These numbers are small. And you expect that. It's, it's not surprising. Okay? That's this problem with these constraints. The constraint on the total mass and the constraint on the total number of seeds. Right? So now let's relax. Let's relax one of those constraints. And what is, that, what is that doing? That's going from heterogeneous nucleation to homogeneous nucleation. Why is that? In homogeneous nucleation, we don't have the number of seeds as a constraint anymore. Okay? So we're going to lift that constraint and consider what happens in homogeneous nucleation. The same picture that I've, uh, the same analysis that I've just presented. Okay, so here are the equations of the Becker-Doring equations. They're, called, they're just called the Becker-Doring equations. They're also nonlinear. These are the equations for the concentration of seeds of, of monomers, dimers, k-mers, and, and tuples. Okay? Again, epsilon is the small parameter, detachment over attachment rates. And if we numerically integrate those equations, qualitatively the same thing, right? You start with nothing except monomers, this dash line. So let's say I start with nine monomers, and let's say I make the largest cluster size four. This starts at nine, comes back down, where all the other clusters start growing, reaches some kind of a plateau, right? This is the quenched state, epsilon equals 10 to the minus five here, so on the order of P equals 10 to the 5, I can detach some of these monomers, redistribute themselves, reach some kind of an equilibrium. Okay. Notice the maximum cluster is the one that's dominant, dominant here. Why? Because epsilon <coughs> is small. Right? All the monomers want to form clusters. Right? And they eventually want to form the largest cluster. Right? So you get the largest cluster and all the other clusters are small. Right, and there's some asymptotic results for that as well. And there's no cluster merging because this is correct. No aggregation, no no coagulation or, or um, 
Which is what you're interested in because we're talking about it, growth of colonies. Correct, correct, correct. You can put it in. It's a bit messier, but you, you can say a lot of things even in that case that I just don't want to present right now. Mm -hmm. but how, okay. how does this depend on the, on the initial condition, on the number of clusters at time zero? Okay. This will depend on the initial condition. Mm -hmm. This will not. This is equilibrium, right? Okay, I've so allowed the number of, of largest cluster sizes will not depend on the number of initial conditions. Is that right? At equilibrium. At equilibrium. These values won't, but these, le these levels will. Right. Here, the initial condition was that all monomers in the beginning, zero, anything else. Right. But if I started this somewhere else, these would change. Okay. Right. These are quench values. I just throw them in. Think of it as this game, this Japanese game with the balls falling. Sure. They fall into bins. Something. <coughs> they just fall and they can never come back out sure. and redistribute but, but themselves. So, so depending on my initial condition, these will change. Yeah, I'm just trying to, to map the analogy with, with the actual system of having yeast cells growing. Uh, so all monomers means only nutrient Me molecules swimming around. That's right. And no cells. Well, not exactly. You need some cells, right? Yeah, of course. Right. right. Um, so, so, so that's what I'm wondering. If, if the number of clusters at equilibrium will depend on the number of, of no, cells. It's, it, it, is, it is starting with M cells. With M cells, OK. And that doesn't set the number so of clusters. M, M, so let's say the M cells, mm -hmm. right? Two of them can, can come together. Or one of them can die, and the other one can replicate and butt off. That would be the same process. Mm -hmm. The total number is still fixed to nine. Right? I mean, that's on a much longer time scale again, of course. Mm -hmm. but, uh, statistically, and, and long times, it should be the equivalent, equivalent model. Okay. Okay, so again, same thing. You write the raising lowering operators, write the master equation, the fully discrete master equation, uh, the initial condition. Again, I'm starting with all monomers, right? N1 is, all, is M. And there's, this, again, this mass, mass constraint, OK? And again, we can do this restricted sum to find my expected number of clusters of size K. All right, and here's uh, the moment closure you can do. Uh, so apply this, again, and you get these equations. So I guess this hierarchy, and, um, <coughs> and again, in, in this approximation, you recover the Becker-Doring. I sort of missed it, but why do you have three raising and lowering operators now instead of two? Uh, no, you had three in the other one, too, but you just didn't have to write three. You didn't have to write it that way. It was shorthand. Because you can use a constraint or something? That's right. And now you remove That's right. it. So, That's oh, right. Okay. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so let's simulate this now. All right, so, so right, you take this approximation, you get back to the Becker-Doring mass action equations. Okay, we numerically, and I just showed you the, the numerical solution of that. That's here. All right, now let's compare. Now let's do, do a simulation of this process. So the first thing we did was let, let's take, uh, let's simulate the full distribution of, and, uh, of, of, of the cluster sizes. And let's go out to infinite time at equilibrium. All right, so let's... Let's assume we have a maximum cluster size of 8, and we start with 31, a mass of 31. Okay. Let's go to equilibrium. Again, epsilon is small. All the monomers want to bind. 
So this is, the, this is the probability that I have this many clusters of size 1. Right? And the probability is 0 everywhere except at 0. Right? That means there are 0 clusters of, uh, 0 monomers left. They've all bound somewhere. Dimers, same thing, 0. 0, 0, 0, 0. 3 clusters of size 8. Right? That's 24. I got 7 left. One cluster of size 7. Okay. These are the, the low, smallest number of clusters you can form, which is 2. I've only formed 2 clusters. 1 of 8, or sorry, um, uh, 4. 3 of 8 and 1 of 7. Right? That's the fewest number of total clusters I can have. <coughs> All right. Let's do the same simulation. Let's add, let's throw in 2 more monomers. Okay, by the way, what would the uh, mass action results tell you here? All right, hold that thought. All right, let's add two more monomers. Look at the distribution. Just disperses. Okay? So you could already see what, what can happen here because of this removal of this constraint of the number of seeds. Okay, so let's do the... Let's do the uh, kinetic uh, KMC in time. These are the solid dat lines are the kinetic Monte Carlo results. Dashed lines are from the mass action, the becker joining equations. All right, eight. Let's do eight and sixteen. What do you expect there? You expect at the end of the day two clusters of size eight, and that's what you get with the kinetic Monte Carlo. You actually get that with the becker doing too, but the convergence is very slow. All right, it's epsilon to the one over n. Right. It gets singular actually when this when the cluster maximum cluster size gets larger. This is a very slow convergence, but quality, and just like in the uh, the uh, heterogeneous nucleation case, you see it's uh, qualitatively the same. Okay. Now I add one more monomer. Poof. You add one more monomer. This is just one out of sixteen. So the vector during results should be the same. It should be off by it should change by about five percent. Right. Nothing much. Six percent. But look at the uh, kinetic Monte Carlo simulations, or right? You get this uh, dispersal. Right? This is this is in some sense like an emulsification effect. I add one extra, and I disperse this whole cluster size distribution. All right. So let's look at this as a function of the total mass. Right? So eight, sixteen, twenty-four commensurate with the maximum cluster size. This is the Becker-Doring result, mass, uh, the mean field result, mass action. These are the concentrations you expect. It slowly increases. But if you look at the kinetic Monte Carlo simulation, oof, I add 17. This is 16. I add one more 17. I drop down to here. Right, that's, that's this line dropping down to here. Okay. So this is really reminiscent of a commensurate and commensurate phase transition. I wouldn't call it that. <laughs> no, you'll see. It's, it's a lot simpler than that. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, we can do the same tree as we did before, right? We can, and again, there, there are, I'll, I'll show you some results. Okay, you start with nine monomers, two of them have come together to form one dimer, and you can go down this tree like that, right? Again, epsilon is small. This is the total number of clusters. I've organized this tree in terms of the total number of clusters, or in other words, the free energy, right? The attachment versus detachment is large. So this, basically, you want to, you imagine throwing balls here, and they trickle down this tree, and they want to come here, right? That's the lowest potential energy, if you will, or the lowest free energy. Notice there's a trap state here. 
If I don't have detachment, I get to here and I can never come back up. Right? And I eventually reach these configurations. It turns out, yeah, through some work, uh, you can enumerate these final lowest level states. You can enumerate the first excited states, and you can do detailed balance between the two to find equilibrium. And then what about the... And the small epsilon approximation. Okay. And what about the trap state? Yeah. Well, what that is the metastable. Do with that one? And you can do that too. Uh, it's, it's then you need the next... You know, because uh, they can be pretty high up, you need to identify what they are. And, and it, that's very messy combinatorically. Well, even this is, but, um, but we've done it. And here are the results. You define a com an income and remainder, right? This is a total mass. Sigma, I'm going to call it an integer, some integer times the maximum size of a cluster minus this remainder term, okay? Minus the negative remainder. And in fact, doing that exact enumerate, the enumeration I just discussed, we can find the exact solution for the expected number of clusters in the small epsilon limit. Okay, and this is a function of all the different, this is a function of, this is adding one additional moderate. So this is for general, uh, this is for general J remainder, and this is for a special case of another remainder. And these are the results. Okay, let's plot these results. Okay, <laughs> expected number of clusters of size K at equilibrium as a function of K and the total mass. When the total mass is 16, which is 2 times 8, you get two clusters of size 8. Right? Two clusters of size 8. I add one more monomer, 17, emulsification occurs. I just blow up, I just disperse this distribution and make it very broad. Add another one, another one, another one, slowly sharpens up until I hit 24, I get three clusters of size 8, and so on. Okay? So, and this is so, still for a maximum cluster size of 8. Correct. Right, right, right. That's, that's, so the only that and M are the only constraints left in the system, right? By just removing this, the C constraint. So there's a huge difference in heterogeneous and homogeneous here in this finite size system, right? Okay. So physically, what's happening? Suppose I have M17, N is eight. I've got an extra monomer, right? So I form two clusters of size eight. I can have one remaining monomer. But remember, the free energy diagram was related to total number of clusters. So here there are three clusters. But in this case, there's actually eight other ways of making states with three clusters, which will be on the order of the same free energy. Okay? So this is really an emulsification due to entropy. Right? This is at, at commensurate, uh, at, at just incommensurate total masses, the entropy increases. And I can get many, many states um, that, have the, that have the minimum number of clusters, in this case three. Right? And this is exactly how we enumerated it. This is, this is, I'm just going through the, the steps here. So you can have uh, one dimer, one heptamer, and one octamer. Or you can have a hexamer, octamer, and one trimer, right? And you see these ones, they converge down. This, that's this row. And then there's this other set, there's other set. So you enumerate them. That's how we got the answer for uh, those, those messy combinatoric results. OK. Uh, so that's the physics behind, behind this. And, and um, so basically what we, what we found was, uh, to put this in a broader context, is that the, uh, in some sense, a new scaling regime for uh, this nucleation process. Okay? So if the mass is very, if the, if the total mass is small, then you get very few small clusters. 
right? And uh, mean field and the exact discrete result are, are very close or commensurate. If the mass is infinite, in fact greater than n squared, then mean field and stochastics also agree. It's only when m over n, the total mass, and the maximum cluster size are commensurate, right? Or, or I'm sorry, I shouldn't use that word, are on the same order. And so this little sliver is this new sort of regime where the mass action results don't hold, where mass action treatment uh, is not accurate, and you need to look at the discrete case. Okay? Uh, so you ask what about all the other cases, right? The heterogeneous, homogeneous, the, the metastable states. So we have, this is what we have. We have an exact formula for this. We have an explicit asymptotic result, which is what I presented, that, that those messy combinatorics for this. And we have numerical recursion relations for the other, other two. Um, and they get, uh, they get a little messy, but I ha uh, we're trying to maybe put this on a, on a server or something where, where you can input P of K and Q of K as well. Right? You can have a cluster size dependent attachment and detachment rates and we'll run, run something and give you the cluster size distributions and the statistics. So, um, how much time? Okay, I do have some time. Okay, I have some time to talk about time. To first, maximum cluster formation. Right. So that's another question you might ask. I start with all monomers. They come down, they trickle down this tree. What's the first time I form a cluster or I grow a cluster of a certain size? Right. So uh, the best way to look at this, what we found was just look at the backward equation for the survival probability. And M is this transition matrix for the, the whole configurational space. And you can define all your moments of the first arrival times like this using, using the survival probability. And so let's go back and look at what, what we mean here. We start here. You do this, that you fall down, you fall down. You want to know the first time, the distribution of times that I first get to here. Or sorry, um, here. What am I saying? Right? This is a one. This means there's one cluster of, of the maximum size. These don't count. Okay. There was the one above. Oh, yeah, maybe here then. Right, very good. Right. <laughs> okay, this is just equilibrium, right? First time to get to here, right? Statistically. Okay, so suppose um, suppose epsilon were very small. That means I fall down this tree and I populate these states. And then to get back up to here, I need to go back up like this. Right? Or, or actually, this one will be quicker. I need to go back up like this and then back down here. Right? But because epsilon is small, that will take a long time. Right? Because many of my trajectories will land here. And they're not going to get here or here, except in time order 1 over epsilon. Right? So the mean time to cluster size, maximum cluster size formation will be 1 over epsilon. Now suppose epsilon is large. Uh, poor notation, but suppose epsilon is large, meaning the arrows go that way. Right? So you start off here, and it takes a long time to, just to do this even. Right? If everything wants to fall apart. So then I'll also hardly ever get here. The mean first passage time is epsilon, which is large in this case. Right? So there's an optimal time to reach the largest cluster. 
in between, right? And we've done some of that. Uh, I won't present that. Same thing happens with the homogeneous case. So in this case, removing this constraint doesn't do much qualitatively for your mean first passage time. I start here. I fall down, fall down. There's this trap state. Actually, this is the one that we want, right? I want to count the first time to get to this one. So these interfere. I can land here. I can land here. Some probability lands here, here, and here. In order to get here, I need to go back up and down again. So that's one over epsilon. Right. And same thing if, if these blue arrows were very large and the black arrows were small, then everything wants to stay up here. And the first passage time to get to this is also a large number. So again, there's an optimal time uh, to reach the largest cluster. Okay? Any questions? A puzzle? No? no? It's fine. Yeah. Okay. So we puzzled why you don't. Your first state with a one in the left and the right is in the third row. Here, right. But some probability, I'll miss this, right? Look at all these other trajectories. As long as one trajectory of some measure non-zero you know, exists, then if I average over, okay, think of this. What's the mean time? It's the time to reach this. Average over all trajectories. But if there's one trajectory, right, if one trajectory takes an infinite amount of time, then the mean time is infinite. Right. Yeah. Sorry, I just have a stupid question. Um, like somewhere, somehow along the way, I missed what exactly your parameter epsilon is. Ah, epsilon is the detachment over attachment, right? Okay. All right. Right. So everything wants yeah. epsilon is small, which is most of the, most of the yeah. cases I've been looking yeah. at okay. is. is Things just want to attach, yeah. and they don't die or they don't detach, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. except very slowly. So yeah. it's actually a singular limit, right? If epsilon is strictly zero, I reach this metastable plateau. Right. If it's non-zero, I reach, I wait a time one over epsilon, and I readjust so, to equilibrium. Uh, Q is the attachment rate, P is the detachment rate. Q is detachment, P is attachment. Sorry, can you say P is attached, Q is detached. All right. Okay. So uh, just one minute. Uh, yeah, okay, thanks. Yeah. Okay. So what are the relationships of Q and P so that we okay. can get more clusters? That you can get more clusters? Yeah, more often. That's not so rare. Oh, uh, um, there's an intermediate value which we, we calculated in some certain oh. cases. And it's, it's not a, it's a numerical thing. Yeah, it's not a, it's, there's no qualitative. It's just one minimum inside between these, between these two. Right. So I can your, show you. Your tease is that and the time for getting the biggest cluster. The mean time, the expected the time. time, which may not be that, you know, what you may really want to look at is the mean time conditioned on reaching the biggest cluster, mm -hmm. right? Because okay. you have these traps and you don't want to count those traps. So that may be a more, I mean, I agree, that may be a more uh, relevant metric. Uh, but, but the mean is easy to calculate for sort of easy to calculate. But you mean, for, uh, for, you say if Q of P is, um, is much larger than one, so it means that the attachment is, you say it's a so, 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 so in this case, for the second, for the second right, for this line, I'm just saying, I'm saying everything, I'm, I'm, I'm taking the opposite limit. Right. Maybe I shouldn't have called this epsilon, but assume this is a large number now. Assume that the detachment rate is high. If the detachment rate is high, I never form big, I rarely form big clusters. Right. 
Yeah. So I rarely get down here anyway, or here. Right. 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 So that time is long. Yeah. So the time is long, and they're both ends. There's an intermediate time where it's the shortest. There's an intermediate epsilon where it's the, sh the time is the shortest. Okay. So. All right, let me just go. Okay, so we looked at um, a discrete stochastic model. And in fact, it wasn't the stochasticity again that's important. In fact, in this case, it was the discreteness and the constraints and the finite size of the system. Um, we found exact results. I didn't present some of them, but there are exact results for epsilon equals zero and, and the uh, singular limit epsilon goes to zero plus. Uh, and right, so there's a qualitative difference in the discrete problem only in the... Um, homogeneous self-assembly case, right? When you re remove that one last constraint. Uh, and in that case, we found this new scaling limit where M and N are comparable. And that's where the finite size uh, is important. And uh, finally, the nucleation times, we analyzed that and we found that, uh, that they typically diverge due to traps. Okay, so let me see. I can get started on this anyway. So this is um, what Eldar and you talked about. Uh, uh, signaling and quorum sensing. So that got me thinking about some other uh, calculations uh, in this area. Sorry, before you continue, so, so you, you mentioned the motivation of this was to look at aggregate sizes in colonies of, of yeast? Yeah, well, that wasn't the motivation, but that's the connection, Okay. I would say, right? I mean, the motivation was that it was a nucleation, nucleation and biophysical okay. problems, yeah. Okay. But given the same kind of nutrient resource constraint, it's, it's the equivalent type okay. model. But, but so just on a different end, time scale. In, in the end, your cluster size doesn't really mean uh, number of cells, <clears throat> of yeast cells per cluster. It means number of these uh, nutrients. No, no, no. Right? It's the number of yeast cells per cluster. Yeah. Okay. The nutrient is not, uh, the, the, the nutrient level just give, tells you how many total yeast cells there can be. Okay, so, so the nutrient level is kind of it's an abstract construct. Yeah, correct, that doesn't correct, mean correct, actual nutrient molecule correct. means potential. It's a chemical cells. potential for the number. Of, it's a chemical cells. potential okay. for the number of cells. Okay. Yeah. So, so how would the story change if you do this spatially? Because I, I think then. Okay. Uh, we're doing we're we're doing some of that. Um, spatially, okay. So even before spatially is the p and the q, as a function of cluster size. Um, there is a way to effectively take spatial effects into account by assigning p and k and q of k in a, in a certain way. And it comes from scaling in the, um, in the mass action equations. That's what we're starting to look at now. But to, full, to include a full diffusion model and everything, we haven't. Uh, uh, that, that's, that's a job for you. <laughs> uh, OK. So uh, signaling and quorum sensing. So the issue here was that cells signal themselves. They constitutively release some kind of autoinducer. And the question that was raised was that, well, if I'm a cell and I'm releasing stuff and my receptor to that stuff that I'm releasing is on, on the same surface, I'm going to smell most of my own stuff, right? I'm going to smell most of my own odor rather than all of yours. Um, because the concentration will be highest near where my receptors are. So how, how can we reconcile that? What does that do? Well, it turns out this, I, I would say, it imposes a physical constraint on the receptor uh, response and also on the concentration right, of, of the cells and the decay rates and other physical parameters. OK, so the model, oops, jumped. OK, so let's look at the lowest order 
what I call the homogenized model, right? Let's look at the mean solution, the mean concentration. So let's assume that this is the mean bulk density of cells emitting, right? And let's just say it follows some kind of growth law, some logistic, right? So typically this bacteria has this live phase, stationary phase. It's roughly this, okay? Um, I'm going to assume two types of autoinducer because some of these autoinducers are peptides that get emitted, that get emitted, that transported out, and there's some processing that might occur, right? So this is the pre-processed autoinducer. There's a decay rate in solution, a conversion rate, and here's the source, right? This is the source, this is a flux out of one cell, this is the number of cells, right? Now, this pre-processed autoinducer gets converted into the active autoinducer which has its own decay rate. So we can solve these equations. Uh, I'm just, just for simplicity, I'm going to neglect this now. All right, so what does this K do? This K basically imparts a delay. I emit something. I need to wait a certain amount of time before that something gets converted into the active form, CA. Right, so that's a delay. You can use the same type of equations to say something, to model uh, the receptor response as well. Suppose I release something and immediately after I release the receptor doesn't respond and I need to wait some time, right? It's the same, it's all in the same mo model. This is a pretty canonical form, I think, for, for a lot of these processes. So if when the K goes to infinity, let's assume that it gets converted right away and there's no degradation of the activated stuff, then you can solve for the activated concentration as, like that. Right? So this is the mean level that I, this is the average level throughout the system, right? If I take my spatially dependent solutions, do an averaging, these are the equations I get. And, that, and in one limit, that's the solution. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't yeah. pay attention. Well, can, can you remind me what is N? N is the number of bacterial cells. Okay. NB. Yeah. Oh, right. The mean level, yeah. right. Yeah. Okay, so the spatial part is time, can, we can assume that the spatial part is time independent. Why? Okay, look at this figure here. Why did I draw these dotted lines? This is a cell model, right? This is the zeroth order homogenization process. You, you, solve in, you solve the problem inside each of these cells. This cell has a source through the boundary, the flux of J1. The boundary condition that you put on this dashed line is the reflecting boundary condition, right? This is just sort of translationally uh, periodic, if you will. Why, so Roughly. Why, why do you put reflecting lines? Because whatever goes out here comes in from this other one. Think of this as a Voronoi tessellation of these sources. Whatever reaches... But, but if they are further apart from one another, then... On average. Right? I'm, I'm assuming it's... I'm assuming a uniformly distributed... Just imagine a periodic uh, heat sources. And I want to. You would, you would make these radii bigger if they are further apart from one another. Correct. Okay. So the radi so right. So the radii depends on N B. Okay. Right. Sure. Okay. No. Then, then so N B yeah. changes much more slowly yeah. than the diffusion time from here to here. Yes. Right. Because N B is a growth rate. One over. You know, the growth rate is whatever. One over twenty minutes. The diffusion from here to here is whatever. Milliseconds. Well, depends on where. Depends on the density, correct? And but still, typically less than 20 minutes. To, to yeah. Get, right? yeah. Right. So, so this, so we can solve this in this, in this annulus, in the spherical annulus, in the quasi-static limit where the annulus radius is slowly changing with the number density of bacteria. But, but, but we have to be talking about something 
things that don't rearrange rapidly compared to the different Correct, times. correct, 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 correct. Those times you can estimate, it's, it's okay. Those times are, well, if, you, if you're interested in mixing or something, you just look at the viscosity of water and how, what the frequency of your shaking is, and that's a dissipative process too, and you can estimate that time. That's yeah. it's also very, yeah. The, the lane scale, the lane scale of shear and stuff is, is much lar typically larger than these, uh, much larger, at least 150 times larger than the oh, interbacteria really? so space. I'm shaking in my shaker, and it's shaking at like 10 hertz. 10 hertz, 10 hertz, yeah. The shear, the, the, the mixing is, is five times, is ten times as this. Within those volumes, I feel no convection. No, that's right. Like that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. And the diffusion within that little annulus is still the fastest process. Okay. Right. Okay. So that's the approximate. So this is the mean approximation, right? And then the spatial dependence, because it's fast, we can neglect the spatial vari the, the temporal variation, right? And just compute this steady state. And you can, right, these are easy to solve. You can just solve these. And you can define this fraction, this, this ratio F, okay? This F is the mean concentration of the active stuff that I sense divided by the, the total, right? And if I want to have a good uh, efficiency, if I want to have a good uh, quorum sensing, good global detection efficiency, then this F has to be near one. Can't be too small. If it's too small, that means this is much greater than, than this. I guess I'm kind of surprised the solution. I think it should be exponential or something. No, this is at the radius, at the cell. Oh, okay. Well, right, I already, right. So, I so already simplified the, it. The mean one is the mean in the, in the whole solution, right? And the, and the, the mean one is the mean one in the okay. solution, right? Is the, is, the, is the average of the solution inside one of these cells. Mm -hmm. right. Okay, and the, and the spatial dependence, which I call delta C, this delta does not mean that it's small. It's just the, the varying part, right? The, at, at RA is, is the one that the cell is actually perceiving. The RA is the surface of the cell, yeah. right? The cell, oh, sorry, the cell is radius A. I forgot to mention that, right? And the, the receptors are on the cell surface as well. And does the dimensionality matter if you're in three, two, or one? Yes, it does. This is all 3D. Yes. Uh, it, it. Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, I assume it will. Yeah, it's just the, yeah, the, the form of these change a little bit. Okay. Uh, right, so again, I mean, I just, yeah, I mean, I only had, whatever, a few days. So I just put in certain limits. I assume that the diffusion of the inactive and activated form are the same. You put in the growth law for the N, and you get an F that looks like that, and you can look at different limits. Um, the thing to take away from all this is that whatever limit you're looking at, basically, you want this F to be close to one, right, or not too small. And that will happen as long as time is large, as long as you wait a long time. Right here, T, 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 T. Right? So, I, I apologize. Uh, yeah. What again is F? I, F is this fraction, this ratio I define, like which is the mean level over the level, over the total level. Mm -hmm. The total level, the, the, the varying level is not changing in time. But the mean level is changing in time because all the cells are, are constantly producing. So mean uh, CA is the, is, the, the is the mean level of, of uh, global uh, uh, signal in the Glo global system. right, and that's what I want to detect. And you divide that by uh, the total at the surface of each cell. The total and huh? but that's just, right. Uh, this is the mean, and this is the the the. The spatial variation on top of the mean that the set that the cell senses. And what does this mean? Uh, so, 
It's just the ratio if, that. If there's nothing, nothing on the surface of the interior, FT is one. So then. CA, Say that again? I, so if there's nothing at the surface of the bacteria, so D, D... If there's nothing at the surface of the bacteria, both of these are zero. I mean... What's delta again? C, uh, delta, delta, delta C is just the spatial varying part of the concentration field. Delta C is the function. It's not delta times C, it's delta C. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Right. It's not, it doesn't mean it's small. It's just delta C. I, I ran out of things to call it. I mean... I guess what we're struggling with is understanding the intuition behind this. So this means okay. that the, 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 there's, what you're saying is in order for quorum sensing to really work, right. uh, the, the, the concentration at the cell surface should not overwhelm should the not total the global concentration okay. that, that I'm not I'm not so sure. Um, because I think the idea also of quorum sensing is that the global concentration will increase if the density increases. Yeah, it is. It does. Yeah. It's increasing with the density here. So, uh, so this is the initial density, right? Mm -hmm. And it's increasing in time because I've already solved for this NB and put it in here. Right. Right. The, the, this is increasing in time because because of this growth rate G. But it also, it, um, where's density then? So it also increases. I've already solved for it. Okay. I put, I solved for NB. NB comes into here. Yeah. And I solve for it explicitly. Okay. So that's why it's increasing. The density comes in through this G. All right. The growth rate. Right. Oh, okay. I've already, yeah, I've already done yeah, it for actually, you. I've already yeah. done, done the work. Okay. Um, so right, just okay. to try to get to be explicit as possible at the end. And then you, you see when, okay. When, what, at what time, right, so you can calculate, from this you can estimate. So, so think, so look at the uh, parameters here, right, the growth rate, right? So, so, so the sensing, it's quorum sensing, obviously it's not an absolute sensing of the density, right? It's sensing everything. It's sensing the diffusion. It's sensing the initial concentration. It's sensing the growth rate in some sense, or the regime at which the sensing of the density is valid depends on all these parameters. But I still don't have an intuition for what this F means. I'm sorry. I, because so F is the ratio. Uh, it, it, it's exactly this, right? It's a ratio of the global over the ratio, over the total density at the surface. So think of F, or one over one minus F, as the total density on the surface divided by the sort of global uniform density. In ideal circumstances, the concentration at the surface would equal the concentration in the bulk, right? If it were... In an ideal limit, right? That, that would be... If, if, if the diffusion constant were infinite, yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I'm yes. thinking about from the point of view of, of the functionality of quorum sensing. Ideally, mm -hmm. the concentration at the surface would be this, the concentration of the bulk. But because this is impossible, because right, the, because the, it needs to diffuse. That's right. That's right. You want, you, what you're claiming is that you, uh, cells want to get as close as possible to this ideal limit, and that's when F. I wouldn't say cells want to. Uh, to, to <laughs> yeah, uh, no, sure. they, yeah, they, yeah. I, they, I, I, I think of it that they're that they're constrained by the physics of the field, yeah. right? That they, so so if they if if you allow this to grow up, right? Then the C bar increases in time. This isn't changing in time. So the C bar is changing in time from the growth, from more bacteria producing stuff. 
and Wait, eventually. Okay, and, and now I get it. The delta C is this concentration. Is basically it's the, concentration the varying part of the concentration. Is the AC part right? Right, right. C C bar is the DC part of the right, concentration. And, and the the delta, delta C is the, the, the varying, varying part. The spatially varying part. And DCAR is A is the spatially varying concentration at the cell surface. Right. And basically, what you say. Okay, sorry, I get it. Right. Right. Okay. So so if you wait long enough. But the question is, how long do you wait, right? And it's all embedded in this, and I haven't, I haven't really uh, analyzed it in detail yet, but it's just to show you the point that if I wait long enough, I can um, actually indeed um, measure, a global uh, measure the global concentration, okay? So again, F depends on these parameters. So this true quorum sensing can only be effective if this also if this uh, threshold is higher than this delta CA as well, right? This is the this is another condition on it, right? I need to have this threshold higher than than whatever this concentration is. If it's lower than that, then every cell would would every cell a cell by itself then would think that it's in high concentration and switch phenotype, right? So this is another condition that we need to put in. So due to these conditions, due to these constraints, uh, and I think Eldar mentioned this. Um, Rosie Redfield uh, objects to this, I guess, uh, or you know, questions this, this hypothesis, and came up with a, a nice uh, idea of diffusion sensing. Right? And the idea is that the cell releases something cheap. See, all these autoinducers, some of them are pretty they're small molecules, small peptides, relatively cheap. Um, they release this, they release uh, the autoinducer, and then they sense the autoinducer too. Now she turns it around and says, well. I want F to be, uh, in some sense, I want to measure the self-generated stuff. What is that? Why? Because if I release the stuff and it gets de degraded or swept away, then it means my environment is, is um, changing or, or there's, no, uh, there's, no, there's no gain for me to release anything more expensive. So the idea, one of our ideas was that I release this cheap auto-inducer, and if I sense a strong level of it myself, then I can release something more expensive. And that something more expensive will stay around. Right? It won't get degraded, it won't get swept away, it'll do what I want it to do. And the example she gave was a protease. Okay? So a cell could release protease, diffuses away, chews up some protein, right? and then use the raw materials for itself. Right? Feed, on the, feed on the raw materials that it made, the amino acids. Okay? So this process would only rely on the total activated sensed at the surface, right? It would sort of be independent of this, this total number density at, at short times. So, so that's, a, that's a sort of you know, flip side to, to this problem. So, so I want to present a toy model about that, which we, we worked on. And, and we, we, this is, we were motivated by her um, hypothesis for this. So assume you're a cell and you release this uh, protease, right? Let's say, let's say I've already released the autoinducer. It came back and it was a strong signal and I said, okay, the environment's good. I'm gonna re release now something expensive, this blue protease, okay? Diffuses and it hits targets. So, the, the, so I've drawn two targets here. These targets may be clumps of protein or something, right? That this protease will degrade. And if it degrades it, it will make it will degrade it into the product, which is red, and the red stuff will diffuse back. 
right? Okay, so this could be pheromone signaling. It doesn't have to be protease and protein, but just something. I release something, it hits you, and you get signaled, and you, in the response, signal back, release something else to me, right? And then this cell, I will use the gradient of the red to chemotax towards it. Okay? So I'm using this as sort of like a pinging, uh, you know, I, I send out a chemical and it hits you and it, and you convert, some, convert into something, bounce back, and I sense it and I move towards. Okay. So now this you're going the, to add on to the, to the previous model, right? Yeah, this is the, this is the, no, this is the red fields. Sure. This is sort well, of a The chemotax and all of that, that's, that's, that. That's, I'm adding that on, okay. yeah. yeah. No, but, but so before you do that, so in, in your original quorum sensing model, you had these two, two forms of the, of the, the signal, right? The inactive and the active. Yes. Right? Yes. Would you still need those two forms, or if you just had one form, would it already work? For what would work? For, for your whole model. This one. Oh, this is. No, no this, the, pre the previous one. The previous one. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, would, uh, would it still be the same if you just. It, it, it is. So this, this is the one model case, because I, I, I sort of. Because it's very messy to include K not equal yeah. to infinity, so I just said well, it to Well, yeah, I was here. even wondering what, why, so, what is the actual motivation to include these, these two forms? Because okay, I, I so, so I with, K, okay. with K, if I decrease K, mm -hmm. I will increase F, typically. Yes, always. Sure, but, but right. why so, have those two forms to begin with? I, I, which two forms? Uh, inactive and active form of uh, autoinducer signal. Is that motivated by some biology? That's motivated by some biology, right. Some of the autoinducers sent out are, are transported through, um, transported out, and potentially need processing. But, but or so what you're saying is that there's some inactive form that's secreted out, then it's taken back up by cells and then converted right. to another form that's secreted out and then no, 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 no. That, that, so, so this is something different. This is just blue emitting and then red coming back. No sure, switching sure. active. No, active. I was talking about the previous example. The, the previous example here is just I release something. It goes into the bulk. I, I release something, but I don't measure it immediately. I can't measure it. I can't sense it. It needs to convert before I can. Mm -hmm. And once it converts, it still then I can sense it. But it Then it's still diffusing. All the K does, as, as I was saying, is, is just add a delay. Right? This is really a canonical form. I could, so suppose I had a model where I release the autoinducer. And right after I release it, there's a refractory period in, this, in the sensors. Mm -hmm. in the receptors that I can't sense it. So it would be the same model. It would be the same model. otherwise it wouldn't work. You need a delay somewhere. The delay helps. And I, and I just set the delay to zero right now, mm -hmm. just to give you, you know, just to show you this, these very simple formula. So but, all these analyses is with the delay zero? With the delay zero, okay. right. But you, I'm, you can add a delay and it would actually increase the F. Okay, I see. Okay. Right? Because it... And you're also assuming delay. perfect detection? I'm not assuming anything, I'm assuming, I'm just looking at the concentration at the surface. So after that, there's a filtering due to the signaling process that, I, that one needs to add in series to this model, if you will. Um, okay, so let's just see what are the consequences of uh, Redfield's uh, diffusion sensing uh, example, which is, used, uh, which is this protease example. Um, Okay, so it releases, and then this cell will move towards the red. Move towards the red. Okay, so let's look. So here are the equations briefly. This is a. This is what the cell releases. So this is a moving source problem, right? This is difficult because the, the source is moving. Although there's some analytic uh, results here too, but mostly the results I'll show you will be numerical. 
So you have diffusion, decay, and you have the source at the position of the cell as a function of time, R of t. You have um, the red stuff that's emitted, and B diffuses, decays, gets converted, right? Get, there's a source, too, and the source is due to a uh, conversion of detecting NA. Okay? The position of the cell, R dot, is some function, which I've written as a gradient here, of NB. Right? NB is the concentration gradient. So, you know, you can assume this is linear if you want, right? The gradient of, the gradient of NB, for example. That's the chemotactic driving. So FT is again this function that you have from... No, 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 sorry, sorry, no. <laughs> no, it, this is something totally different. FT is just the source function of, of emission oh, okay. of the, right. right. And, and delta here, what's delta here? It's a delta function. Okay. Right. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. Is it Dirac delta? Yes, yes, yes. And, and K and U are just functions. Sorry, K is what? Just functions, some some functions. So A A is the emitted stuff, and B is the A is the blue stuff, stuff that I emit yeah. to do the pinging, and, and, and B is the red stuff that you respond to, you respond and send back to me. Right. So and I follow B as I'm moving. Right. But, um, sorry, sorry for um, I I don't get the, the sum term. Which one? The sum over J. Uh, these are all the sources. Oh, you have different. I have many, sources. many sources. Okay, right, right. It's just general. And k is just a function, or just, just some function, some right with a delay or something. It, it's it's not important what it is. It depends right on the on the. Uh, it says how quickly how quickly, for example, is the is the stuff degraded by the protease. Uh, if a is the protease. Yes, so yes, 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 the, yes. In the protease picture, right, right. Or it's your response. I send you I send you blue. Yeah. You detect blue, you want to emit red for me, right? Yeah. Let's say we're attractive to each other, and, and I'm sending you a pheromone, and you send back me another pheromone, red right. pheromone, and I move towards yeah. you, right? And then That's the response, yes. That's your response to my A. What do you mean with the last equation? The derivative this one. R? This is just chemotactic. Uh, oh, okay. Right, so the R is moving. So that R is me, the position that I'm at, and I'm moving this towards you. This is your position. Okay, this is yeah. okay. Right? Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> and you don't emit red stuff in response to your own. No, stuff, no, right? no. So right. These are different, stuff. right? Different, right? Right. Right. Um, although I thought of that the model. There's, there's, there's autocrine signaling and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, the endothelial cells. The endothelial cell model is autocrine. Okay. Okay. There's other other examples too, I guess. Okay. So let's look at one target at position one. And I forgot what dimension. I think this is 2D I did. I did 2D and 1D, all right? So this may be 1D. I don't remember exactly, but OK. So let's assume I have a total fixed amount of blue, Q, that I release. Okay, and I've set it to 20. And I'm going to release it in the way, in, in a big step pulse, which is the height, F0, times tau, the duration of the pulse. And I'm going to keep that fixed. So this is a strategy. Right? There's, a there's, a, there's a target at, at distance one away, and I want to move towards it. So what happens? So this is the trajectory R, or X. I guess this is 1D, X. Okay? Um, 
okay, I can release it in a very short, intense pulse. And what happens? That's the dotted line. I go there very quickly, and I peter out. Or I can release it in a, in a weak pulse, but for a long time. Then I would reach the target eventually. Right? There is an intermediate, again, there's an intermediate pulse strength and pulse duration at which, for which I reach the target, but I also reach it in the shortest time. Okay? You can kind of understand that already, right? Just physically, if you think about it. If I have a very strong pulse, I set up large gradients. Set up large gradients so the velocity is larger. Right? But eventually it burns itself out. Right? Because I release it all, I release most of it while I'm here, some far distance away. And now if I release it a little bit more slowly, I release a little bit, even though the gradient's small, I eventually move towards a little closer, and then the next little aliquot that I release is more effective because I'm closer. Right? So then I can get dragged, dragged closer. Um, so this is one target? So. This is what? One target. One target. Okay. So then we've also did some uh, asymptotics and numerics on the first, passage, the first time to reach that target. And you can see, depending on the strength, the total release strength, so gamma is the response. I didn't define that. Gamma is, the, gamma is in U, basically. Gamma is a, a parameter in front of this thing. Right? It's basically the strength of the response, of the motion, of the chemotaxis. <laughs> so you can see that there is a, ma there is a um, if, I, if I don't release enough stuff, I, I will never get there. And again, there is an optimal release duration. That's this red line here. There's optimal release duration that gets me there the quickest. And if I go, you know, if my release duration is too short, then I never reach it. That, that's, that's this case here. Right. So yeah. why don't you have an optimum, which is actually something where you say start with a high value and then let the secretion tail out? Okay, I, uh, I optimized only in the, in the space of these step functions. Right, I didn't, I didn't look at it. Mostly numerical, but if you assume step functions, you assume specific functions, uh, these are asymptotic. There's some asymptotic but, results, yes. But since you're, you're, you're doing a minimization of the... I mean, could, could, you, could you solve for an arbitrary function and, and actually optimize the functional form for the pulse? I think I can numerically, yeah, yeah, with a lot of work. I I haven't I haven't explored that. Yeah, I just assumed it's square pulse for simplicity, just because uh, analytically it was easier to do. But an exponential pulse, maybe, maybe I don't. Well, it'll be numerical. Most of this is numerical anyway. Well, you'd expect it's going like, to, certainly going to be better than this, and it can't be any further to the right than if you extrapolated your infinitely high pulse begin with. So it's got to be somewhere in between those two lines. Which two lines? The dashed line there. And the red one. The red one. If you extrapolated if your dashed line up to... Yes, yes. Uh, uh, but you're, you're constrained by the total number as well. This is the, the, total, um, uh, the total amount that you can release. Right, so there's another, there's a, the whole space of functions that are not square functions. Then you functions. can try multiple pulses. Yeah, I'm getting there. Right, next. Okay. And the graphs on the right are still constrained to F naught times tau as a constant? So yes, yes, this constant, so yes. So as release duration yes. goes up, yes. Yes. Goes yes. yes, correct. 
And, and the optimal will depend on how far away it is. It'll depend on everything, and I just all these parameters are one just to illustrate. Yeah, it does. There's a there's a big sort of phase space of parameters here. Um, I just tried to pull out the, the the interesting bits. Okay, so we can look at the response of the cell as well. Gamma. Remember, gamma is the response. How quickly I chemotaxed towards something. Okay, and again, this is now I'm looking at I'm going to look at two targets. Okay, so here's the question. Let's go back to the original picture. So that was one target. Here's two targets. Suppose I have a target that's far, but strong. Let's say there's a lot of protein here, and the protease degrades it, and there's a lot of red. I could have another target that's closer, but that's weaker, for example. So the question is, which one will I go towards, right, if I release the blue? Okay. So here in 1D, let's say I have one target at 1 and another target behind me at minus 0.5. And I'm going to release with this theta function. Constant release. Right, I just turn on my release and keep it on. This is how uh, there's a response function as well. Right? So if the response is slow, I release. This one is closer. So I always start moving to the closer one. Right? Because that's where the signal gets back to me first. So I start moving there. But because the response is slow, I only move there a little bit. Right? Before the big response from one catches up, bounces back, comes back, and signals me and drags me back away. Right? Now, if the, my response is fast, and, and you see this is 0.2, 0.23, right? So look, there's a, there's a transition between 0.22 and 0.23. 0 0.22, 0 0.23, uh, did I mix these up? I think these are switched. What, right, these are switched, sorry. This is 0.23, 0.22. Um, uh, if the response is, is a, little, a little stronger, I get closer to the weak target, but still not quite enough. The large signal from the farther target pulls me back. But then if I change it to 0.22, uh, it's, it's, it's correct. Is it correct? Okay. Uh, if, I, if I just increase the response just a little bit, then I, I move towards the, the, the closer target, and I get close enough such that even such that the, the stuff released later on in time is sufficient to pull me to the closer one. Even it, it overwhelms even the strong response from the far from the far target. Okay, so this is response. Okay, now frequency. Now let's okay. So let's look at the two red lines here. T is the duration between pulses. So I'm going to assume I'm going to release a pulse, wait a unit time three, and release another one. And I'm going to scale the factor in front of the release intensity to be the same, so that at long times, the total amount released here and here are the same. And that's the only way to compare the two, right? So I'm going to release at a high frequency, but the amplitude is going to be smaller, right? So this is the same response now. Depending now, so, so these two lines, depending on the frequency of release, I can either go to the closed target and stay there, or sort of oscillate, and then eventually reach the, the large target, the large farther target. All right, so this is telling me that there's a frequency dependence of which target I choose as well. Okay, so here's a phase diagram in terms of the interpulse duration, interpulse time, and the response, and you can see there's this tongue. Here it goes to the weak target, and out here it goes to the far target. And a, and a, 
easier way to see that, sorry, I'm a little late here, but this is the last slide. The easier way to see that is through um, the separate tricks that I've drawn out here. So this is in 2D. Assume that there are two targets, point uh, here and here. And this farther target, so I'm going to start either here or here. This farther target has a K2. K2 is the response. It's how much red I emit when I detect blue. Okay? So this is a stronger target that's farther away. This is a weaker target that's closer. If I release as a heavy side function, there's the separate tricks. Right? Meaning that if, I release, that if I start on this side, I'll go towards the close one. If I start on this side, I'll go towards the strong one. Okay? So, you can so the separate tricks depends on the functional form of the release. Right? That's the high dimensional problem, of, uh, unfortunate problem of this. You can't just define a separate tricks by you know, solving the strains and the positions of the, of the sources. It actually depends on your release and your strength and your response strength, your, your chemotactic response. Okay, but uh, so let's say, let's look at this, this case here. I start here, I release as a theta function, I go to the far target, the far stronger target. But assume that I use this function, right? So this is 10 times the sum of these delta functions with a time t in between them. 10, right? So this, the long time average of this equals the same, same as the long time average of that, the total amount that I release, right? So I can compare the two. So if I release at this frequency, 1 over 10 hertz, if you will, 1 over 10, then I actually pick the other target. Okay? Are these just schematic? I mean, the, the other solutions look like they had lots of oscillations and stuff. Uh, uh, th this, this, this is schematic. This is schematic. Yeah. Right. I didn't, I didn't plot the actual trajectory here. Good. Yeah. Um, right. That, that, that's right. Yeah. We, we, we did actually. No, it, it, you, we, you do have that. Okay. Of the pulses. Um, so anyway, that concludes my talk, and uh, hopefully, if you have any questions, I'll answer. So do you do these simulations on a lattice and then each cell is a lattice point or what? No, just solving the integrals. Okay. Yeah, numerically. So exact in some sense. Yeah.